Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Ezekiel chapter 20 is where we're at this morning. Ezekiel 20, beginning with verse 1. It says, And it came to pass in the seventh year, in the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month, that certain of the elders of Israel came to inquire the Lord and sat before me. So, eleven months have passed since the last set of prophecies were given to Ezekiel. Those prophecies were detailed in chapters 8 through 19. And once again, the elders of Israel, now they're in captive in Babylon right now, um, Ezekiel and, and, and uh, these elders, and they're going to Ezekiel. He's being recognized as a prophet, and they're going and they're coming before him, and they want to hear a word from the Lord. And that's what people did in those days. They'd go to the prophet, and they'd sit and say, would you inquire the Lord for me? You know, tell me what's going to happen. And, and so here they show up at Ezekiel's door, and they're asking him to inquire the Lord on their behalf. And uh, they undoubtedly want to hear how soon the Lord's going to deliver them. I mean, you know, here they are in captivity. Lord, when are you going to release us from captivity? When are you going to crush the Babylonian armies? And when are you going to restore Israel to its former glory? You know, they they want to go back to Israel. And so now they're sitting down in front of Ezekiel and they're waiting. And the Lord speaks again to Ezekiel. Now, you know, the thing that the Bible doesn't tell us is how long did he wait, you know, Uh I don't know about you, but I've waited on the Lord, and sometimes I've waited quite a while for the Lord to, to speak to me. And, and so, you know, we don't know, the Bible doesn't say, but at some point, the Lord spoke to Ezekiel and told him what to tell the elders. And that's what's in the rest of this chapter. And so, verse 2, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the elders of Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Have you come to inquire of me? As I live, says the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. Will you judge them, son of men? Will you judge them? Then make known to them the abominations of their fathers. The last couple times the elders had inquired of the Lord and they wanted to know, you know how God was going to deliver them or how soon things were going to happen, God revealed to them through Ezekiel that they were idol worshipers. And that, you know, revealed their idolatries. They didn't get the answer that they were seeking. And this time is no different. God's not going to be inquired of them as long as they still have a spirit of rebellion in their hearts. You know, the Bible says in Proverbs 28, 9, one who turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. I mean, these people have turned their ears from the law. They're not, they're not following God's law, and yet they still want to hear from the Word, you know, hear from the Lord. And, and, and there's many people that do that today. They want to live their own lifestyle, but they still want you know, God to bless them. They still want God you know, involved in their lives. And Jesus said in John 4.24, God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And that word truth is the word that means in sincerity. And God commands that we worship Him with sincere and truthful hearts. That we be honest about ourselves when we come to God. In Psalm 51, 6, it says, Behold, you desire truth 
in the inward parts. God desires us to be truthful. Truthful about what? Truthful about our lives, about, about where we're at in our hearts. Hebrews 10.22 says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having a heart sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You know, you're not in hypocrisy, basically, is what we're talking about. And so God knew that these elders were not sincere in their heart. And so he's not going to be inquired of by them. But instead, he's going to give them a history lesson about their continuous rebellion. And so the history lesson is basically broken up into three, or three, three lessons. The first lesson, he's going to remind them of their rebellion in Egypt. Um, you see, the history of their ingratitude and rebellion of the children of Israel, it goes back all the way to their beginnings as a nation. And, uh, you know, that is true for all mankind, if you think about it. Because no sooner had God created Adam and Eve that, you know, within a couple chapters, we read there in Genesis of the very first rebellion against their maker. That's just human nature. Verse 5 says, Say to them, Thus says the Lord God, On the day when I chose Israel and raised my hand in an oath to the the descendants of the house of Jacob and made myself known to them in the land of Egypt, I raised my hand in an oath to to them, saying, I am the Lord your God. On that day I raised my hand in an oath to them to bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them, flowing with milk and honey, the glory of all lands." Here they were in Egypt. They had gone down as 70 people. And by the time God raised up Moses to deliver them, I mean, they were like 2 million people. God at that time had remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he was going to deliver them from slavery in Egypt. And he was going to bring them out into a land that he had searched out for them. And it was a good land. The Bible says it was a land flowing with milk and honey. Just a beautiful, fertile place. Not only that, But if you were to read in Exodus chapter 6, when the Lord is speaking to Moses, he says this in verse 1, he says, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will let them go, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But my name is Lord, uh, but by my name, Lord, I was not known to them. So not only had God remembered his covenant, not only had he, you know, uh, promised to deliver them, to bring them out of Egypt, but God at this point is now revealing himself to the children of Israel by a new name that he hadn't revealed to his, their forefathers before. To them, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is God Almighty, El Shaddai. But now he says, now I am El uh, I am the Lord, which is Yahweh, Jehovah's, is another term. And it basically means the one existing, excuse me, the existing one, the true God. And so God's just revealing another uh, nature, another character of himself to the children of Israel. And he says, I am the Lord and I'm going to deliver you. God was going to do all these things for them. And God only had one expectation from the children of Israel in Egypt. And Ezekiel mentions it here in verse 7. This is God speaking. Then I said to them, Each of you throw away the abominations which are before his eyes, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. 
you know, as I was preparing this, I'm thinking, okay, you know, I know about this, the idol worship in, in, uh, in the wilderness when they came out of Egypt. And I know the idol worship that they did in Canaan because they got involved with the idol worship there. But I don't recall reading about any idol worship in Egypt. And yet God says here that they need to put their, their abominations away from them. And so I was thinking, is there a mention of the children of Israel involved in idolatry in Egypt? And I couldn't find anything specifically in there. But you know what is there? Is the absence of the Lord, of the worship of the Lord is there. How's that? You know, people were created to worship God. And if they don't worship Him, they're going to worship something. And they're either going to worship themselves, and there's a lot of people that worship themselves, or they're going to worship idols, which are other things, or they're going to worship false gods. But make no mistake, everybody worships something or someone. We were created that way. That God created us with that desire to worship something. And were they worshiping God in Egypt? Well, in Exodus 3, verse 12, God speaks to Moses. He's introducing himself to Moses there at the burning bush. And he's telling him, he says, I will certainly be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And so generally speaking, I think the people were not worshiping and serving the Lord in Egypt. Moses, later on, and Aaron, they come to Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 5. And this is what they tell Pharaoh. They say, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days journey into the desert and sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. That tells me that they weren't sacrificing in Egypt. They were going to go out of Egypt to sacrifice the Lord. Then an interesting thing happens, and it's really obscure. In Exodus chapter 4, it says that God almost killed Moses. Huh? What? God almost killed Moses? Yeah, God, God sent Moses to go to tell his people to be free. And then in chapter 4, you read God is going to kill him. Like, what in the deal? What's going on with that? God was almost killed Moses before he even started his ministry Moses was ready to dive into ministry and serve the Lord, but he had neglected the covenant of circumcision for his sons. And so his wife, Zipporah, performed the circumcision of his two sons. Who knows how old they were? Teenagers, probably. Uh, and and um, that was the job that Moses should have done as the father and head of his household. But he had neglected that. He was just going to go full bore into ministry, and God was going to take him out of ministry. That's how important it is when you know you and I get involved in ministry that we're that we make sure that we're taking care of our family as well. Such an important thing. Later on, God speaks to the people in verse seven of chapter six in Exodus, and he says, I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. That's future tense. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Now if you, if you look through the book of Exodus, there is one group of people in Egypt who did stand out among the children of, of Israel, and that was the Hebrew midwives. They, the Bible says, they feared God, and they feared God more than the edict of Pharaoh. Pharaoh said, you know, there's too many of the Hebrew slaves. We need to start killing them off, basically. And so they, he said, you know, if there's, a, if there's a male Hebrew slave that's born, kill it. 
And the Hebrew midwives, they feared God, and they wouldn't do it. And uh, they wouldn't kill the Hebrew male babies. And God blessed the midwives. And what they did in that stand that they took is recorded in scriptures for us. So there was a group of people. It's not, not everybody on the whole had rebelled against God. But by and large, on the whole, the people were involved in the worship of Egyptian idols because they weren't worshiping God. And so the absence of worshiping God, they're going to worship something. And so, and obviously God saw that they were worshiping idols and says, I want you to put those idols away from you. You know, one other thing too, by the mere fact, remember in the wilderness, the golden calf story, we'll talk about a little bit later, but uh, when they were shortly out of the wilderness or into the wilderness, and at one point Moses is up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments and he's gone for a while. And they're like, what happened to this Moses guy? And so they turn to his brother Aaron and they say, make a God for us. And so Aaron makes the golden calf. And you, know, you guys know the story. It's interesting that that happened so soon after they had left Egypt. And I think it reveals their heart. Because although they had left Egypt... Egypt had not left them. They were, still, they were still drawn to that idolatry. And so God's only requirement was that they would throw away the abomination, abominations which were, which were before their eyes and that they wouldn't defile themselves with the idols of Egypt. In verse 8 it says, But they rebelled against me and would not obey me. They did not cast away the abominations Uh, They did not all cast away the abominations which were before their eyes, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I said, I will pour out my fury on them and fulfill my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. You know, having been delivered from Egyptian slavery, you would think that they would have forsook Egyptian idolatry. Those plagues that God uh, inflicted upon Egypt... Each one of those plagues was, was directly tied to or related to the worship of one of the Egyptian gods. And it showed that God of the Bible, the God of Israel, was omnipotent and more powerful than any of the idols that Egypt, any of the false gods that the Egyptians worshipped. And you would think, having been delivered from slavery, that they would have forsaken the Egyptian idolatry, but they didn't. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, Peter says that you and I have become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Just like the children of Israel being delivered from Egypt, you and I have been delivered from slavery of sin. We've escaped the curse of the sin, of sin which is death, right? And you would think that we would forsake idolatry, but too often, it's not the case with us. Too often, too, with too many believers, we're still drawn to the things that we've been set free from. You know, a lot of times, and I know it's happened in my life in the past too, you get to those periods where you feel like you're just not really pursuing the Lord. You feel like you're kind of in a dry place or whatever. And you kind of feel like, well, you know, I think I'm kind of in neutral with the Lord. And, and that's a deception. Because... If you're not actively pursuing the Lord, the truth of the matter is you're not in neutral. You're actually slipping away from Him and you're moving back into idolatry. That's why it's always important to, to examine our hearts and, and, and to, to continue to p- pursue hard after the Lord. So they rebelled against the Lord in Egypt. Verse 9, 
but I acted for my name's sake, that it should not be profaned before the Gentiles among whom they were, in whose sight I had made myself known to them to bring them out of the land of Egypt. The, the, the children of Israel in Egypt, they didn't deserve God's love and his compassion. This is just speaking about God's grace here. We're getting into the next history lesson, and it's their rebellion in the wilderness. Verse 10. Therefore I made them go out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. And I gave them my statutes and showed them my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. Moreover, I also gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between them and me that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. The commandment to observe the Sabbath was specifically created for the nation of Israel. It was a sign of God's uh, goodwill to them. He had rested from his labor, creating the world, and he was providing rest to them, for them from their labor. And so uh, it was a sign of God's goodwill to them. Their observance of the Sabbath was a sign of their regard for God. And it was a weekly thing. It was a weekly, reoccurring thing, event to remind them of God's rest. And you think about it. Here they've been delivered. They were treated very cruelly as slaves in Egypt. God delivered them, brought them into the wilderness, uh, instituted the, the, the observance of the Sabbath rest for them. What a fitting reminder it would be of them weekly to remember how God had delivered them and given them rest. You know, the question comes up from time to time. Are we, as New Testament believers, bound to observe the Sabbath? And there are some people that think, yes, Christians, we're we're supposed to observe the Sabbath. But listen to what Paul writes in Colossians 2, verse 16. So let no one judge you in food or in drink, or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is of Christ. That Sabbath rest is a shadow of, of the rest that you and I receive in Jesus Christ. Jesus performed the work of of justification for us. He worked, he labored for us uh, once and for all in Calvary, and then he rested. He's not being sacrificed anymore. And we as believers are to enter into that rest by trusting in Jesus Christ and not in our own works, trying to earn our own salvation. That's, that's what the rest is all. It's all pointing to Jesus and his sacrifice for you and I. Well, now that they're in the wilderness, in this, this history lesson here, you know, there's a lot written in both the New and the Old Testament about the children of Israel in the wilderness. You know the stories. You know, they grumbled. They complained. They continually rebelled against God who had set them free from bondage. Look at verse 13. Yet the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes. They despised my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. And they greatly defiled my Sabbaths. Then I said I would pour out my fury on them to consume them then I said I would pour out my fury on them in the wilderness to consume them. You know, here again, they deserve destruction. They deserve God's wrath because they've rebelled against Him once more, over and over and over again. There's that famous incident, and I mentioned it earlier, the golden calf incident. You know, it's, an inter- it's actually, when you start reading it, it's actually almost, 
almost, well, it's, it's not, but I mean, it's almost kind of humorous the way God and Moses interact with each other because they actually start arguing over the children of Israel. If you ever read that account. Here, Moses is up on the, on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments. The children of Israel, they've gotten the golden calf. They're starting to worship the golden calf. And God says to Moses, Hey, Moses, go get down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. And then a little later he says, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation. Just think, if, if God had followed through that, we would have the children of Moses instead of the children of Israel. God was ready to consume them, and he was ready to make a nation out of Moses instead. And Moses, so he says, go down, your people have done this, Moses. And then in Exodus 32, 11, Moses is speaking back to God. and says, then Moses pleaded with the Lord as God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? And then Moses proceeds to intercede on behalf of the people. And it says the Lord relented from his harm that he said he would do to his people. And you read that, and you read all these stories about how God, you know, he was going to wipe them out, but then he relented of it. And, you know, a lot of times people look at God of the, of the Old Testament, they say, well, he's a God of wrath and a God of judgment. And he's just, you know, there's all this bloodshed and killing this and killing that and sacrificing this. And it's like the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. But it's not true. The God of the Old Testament is a God of loving kindness, grace, and mercy. And I think... In this whole episode here, God is actually working in Moses' heart to make Moses compassionate like God is compassionate. He wants to do the same thing in your and my heart. He wants you and I to be compassionate towards people. And so God's doing a work in the, in the heart of Moses and turning Moses into an inter- interceder for his people. Well, verse 14, it says, But I acted for my name's sake that it should not be profaned before the Gentiles in whose sight I had brought them out. Verse 15, So I also raised my hand in an oath to them in the wilderness, that I would not bring them into the land which I had given them, flowing with milk and honey, the glory of all lands, because they despised my judgments and did not walk in my statutes, but profaned my Sabbaths, for their heart went after their idols. Nevertheless, my eye spared them from destruction. I did not make an end to them in the wilderness, but I said to their children in the wilderness, Do not walk in the statutes of your fathers, nor observe their judgments, nor defile yourselves with their idols. I am the Lord your God. Walk in my statutes, keep my judgments, and do them. Hallow my Sabbaths, and they will be a sign between me and you, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. So what God did is he ended up having the children of Israel wander around for 40 years in the wilderness. And until that entire generation that grumbled and complained and rebelled against him died in the wilderness, except for two people, right? Joshua and Caleb. And then God made a covenant with their generation's children to bring them into the land of Canaan. And you would have thought, okay, they've seen the errors that their fathers have made. They've heard the stories. They've, they've seen all that. They've witnessed it. 
And you'd think that, okay, now they're finally going to start following the Lord and, and they're going to turn away from their idols when they get into the promised land. Everything's going to be, you know, rosy and peachy. Verse 21, Notwithstanding the children rebelled against me, they did not walk in my statutes and were not careful to observe my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. But they profane my Sabbaths. Then I said I would pour out my fury on them and fulfill my anger against them in the wilderness. That's the children he's talking about. If you look in the story in the, in, in the, in the Bible when they're in the wilderness... The Sabbath breaker record. Remember the guy that started he started picking up stuff during the Sabbath? Uh, that happened after this covenant in Numbers 15. Korah's rebellion in Numbers 16 and 17 occurred after that. Uh, the murmuring of the entire congregation after God destroyed Korah occurred after that. And then there's the story where they join themselves with the harlots, uh, the, join themselves in harlotry of the woman of Moab. So the children, they rebelled as well. Verse 20, uh, verse 22, excuse me. Nevertheless, I withdrew my hand and acted for my name's sake, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the Gentiles, in whose sight I had brought them out. Also, I raised my hand in an oath to those in the wilderness that I would scatter them among the Gentiles and disperse them throughout the countries because they had not executed my judgments, but had despised my statutes, profaned my Sabbaths, and their eyes were fixed on their father's idols. As they're approaching the end of their their traveling through the wilderness, Moses is getting ready to die. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, he's giving them the, 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 the cursings and, or the blessings and the cursings. And in Deuteronomy 28 verse 64, Moses prophesied to that generation of Israel entering the promised land that eventually they would be scattered among the nations of the world because of their sin. Now this was not fulfilled in the Assyrian captivity of the ten northern tribes, because they were in captivity by this time, nor the Babylonian captivity that was going to happen occur here with the nation of Judah. But it did describe the dispersion of the Jews following the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Because when they went into Assyria and when they went into Babylon, they weren't in all the nations throughout the world. They were in Babylon. They were in Assyria. But once after 70 AD, the Jews went everywhere throughout the world. And so this was speaking, I believe, about this time. Um, Verse 25. Therefore, I also gave them up to statutes that were not good and judgments by which they could not live. And I pronounced them unclean because of their ritual gifts in that they caused all their firstborn to pass through the fire that I might make them desolate and that they might know that I am the Lord. It says here that God gave them up to statutes that were not good. Why did he do that? Well, because they forsook his statutes that were good. They went on their own way. They were causing their firstborn to pass through the fire. That's What that's talking about is human sacrifice that was offered to Molech. And so if the people continually, stubbornly refused to listen to the God and they continue to rebel against God, and you can read it throughout Scripture, God oftentimes gives them over to their wicked desires. And what, what does He mean by giving them over? He allows them to harden their hearts. Um, and, and basically, it's whoever's not going to renounce, renounce idolatry, they're going to end up being given over to its power, and they're going to get drawn deeper and deeper into idolatry. 
Because if you refuse, God's, God's not going to force you to follow him. If you're going to continue rebellion, he's going to give you over to that. That's not a good thing when that happens, by the way. So the lesson number three, their rebellion in the land of Canaan, verse 27. Therefore, son of man, speak to the house of Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, In this too your fathers have blasphemed me by being unfaithful to me. When I brought them into the land concerning which I had raised my hand in an oath to give them, and they saw all the high hills and all the thick trees, there they offered their sacrifices and provoked me with their offerings. There uh, There they also sent up their sweet aroma and poured out their drink offerings. Then I said to them, What is this high place to which you go? So, it is, so its name is called Bema or Bama to this day. So once inside Canaan, it wasn't long before the children of Israel worshiping idols on the high places. That's a, a place where they would find a high place to do this worship, or in the tree groves and worshiping idols. Verse 30 Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God. Are you defiling yourselves in the manner of your fathers and committing harlotry according to all to their abominations? For when you offer your gifts and make your sons pass through the fire, you defile yourselves with all your idols, even to this day. So shall I be inquired of by you, O house of Israel, as I live, says the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. What you have in your mind shall never be. When you say we will be like the Gentiles, like family, like the families in other countries serving wood and stone. And so God now is addressing the elders that are sitting before Ezekiel. They had continued in the sins of their forefathers. You know, the people of Israel, they basically wanted it both ways. They wanted to do, you know, to be just like the world around them, to live their lives as they pleased, but they also wanted God to speak to them and for God to bless them. People do that today. And God says to them, you can't have it both ways. I'm not going to be inquired of by you. You know, and just about every point in their history as a nation, the children of Israel rebelled against God. And yet God, in his grace and in his mercy, man, didn't wipe them out. That's a love of God. And so now God here gives them a promise to restore them. And they didn't deserve it, but God's giving them this promise because of his grace. Verse 33, As I live, says the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand, With an outstretched arm and with fury poured out, I will rule over you. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you are scattered with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, and with fury poured out. So when they returned from Babylon, when they returned from Assyria, this is not the the prophecy, or this is not the fulfillment of that. This, I think, is what we're seeing today with the Jews starting to come into the land. It's not completely fulfilled yet. I think it's going to be ultimately fulfilled uh, during the millennial reign of Jesus Christ from Jerusalem. So I think this is what we're talking about actually into the future yet. Verse 35, I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples, and there I will plead my case with you face to face, just as I pleaded my case with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt. So I will plead my case with you, says the Lord God. You know what God's saying here, basically? He can say, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm not going to give up on you. I'm going to plead my case with you in the wilderness of the peoples. In other words, they're going to be scattered abroad. 
they're going to be in a difficult place. You know, being in a wilderness is not like going on a vacation to some, you know, resort or something. It, it's it's a wilderness. There's nothing there. It, survival is difficult in a in a wilderness. Um, all your creature comforts are removed from you in a wilderness. And God says, you know, I'm going to take you into this place where you're not going to be comfortable, where it's going to be hard. You know, I think about my own life, man. I, I'm so thankful God never gave up on me when I was in rebellion. You know, he pursued me. I didn't pursue God. God pursued me. Now, part of that process of his pursuing you and I sometimes involves going through a wilderness, going through a difficult time in our lives. But there's a purpose behind the wilderness. There was a purpose behind the, the children of Israel going through the land, uh, going through the wilderness before they entered the promised land. And there's a purpose for your and my wilderness that we go through. It's to refine us. You know, it's to burn away the chaff in our life. It's funny, when you go through a difficult time, you finally start to realize what's important and what's not important. And, you know, as things are going smoothly, it's pretty easy to take things for granted. And you get into a hard place, and all of a sudden it's like, you know what? That didn't matter. This is what matters. It's to refine us. It's to refocus us, too. You know, God wants us to be singularly focused on Him for our daily needs, completely relying upon Him. And that's what the children of Israel had to do in the wilderness. Food wasn't just abounding there. God, they had to wait for God to provide the manna as they were going through the wilderness. And He provided for them miraculously. He took care of them. You know, it's, a, it's amazing when you think about how God fed the children of Israel. You think there was like a couple million people. How, many, how much food would that take to feed a couple million people? I, I mean, one time I remember did a read somewhere, did a study on it, and it talked about how many train car loads of food each day to feed that many people. It's amazing. And yet God miraculously provided for them. But God wanted them to become completely focused on Him and relying upon Him completely. Excuse me, 100%. God wants that for us as well. And then finally, a wilderness is to restore us, to bring us back into a right relationship with Him. And so sometimes when you and I are rebelling against God, God's going God's to plead His case with us. He's going to put us through a wilderness, but it's to draw us back to Him. Verse 37, I will make you pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant passing under the rod, that's basically a term that the shepherds used. It's a way that they counted their sheep. And what God's basically saying to his people is, I'm counting you as my own. I'm not going to give up on you. I'm not going to let you go. I'm not going to let the enemy have you. I'm pursuing you. Verse 38, I will purge the rebels from among you and those who transgress against me. I will bring them out of the country where they dwell, but they shall not enter the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So not everyone who was dispersed abroad would return to Israel, because a wilderness is also a time of testing true faith. And and as a matter of fact, some people are not going to pass the test. That's what God says. You know, you're all going into the wilderness, but not all of you are going to be coming out of it. Verse 39 As for you, O house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, go serve every one of his idols and hereafter, if you will not obey me. But profane my holy name no more with your gifts and your idols. God basically is telling them, man, he'd rather have them openly reject him and serve their idols than be hypocrites and secretly worship idols while going through the motions of dead worship. We read in Revelation 3, 
Jesus is speaking to the church of Laodicea, and he's saying basically the same thing. In verse 15, he says, I know your works, that you're neither hot, uh, excuse me, neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. God wants you either on fire for him or not. And sometimes we get into this thing where we just, you know, we kind of play games with him. We want to live our lives as we want, but we also, you know, we want that fire insurance. I want to go to heaven when I die. God says you can't have it both ways. Verse 40, For on my mountain, on my holy mountain, excuse me, on the mountain of height of Israel, says the Lord God, there all the house of Israel, all of them in the land shall serve me. There I will accept them, and there I will require your offerings and the first fruits of your sacrifices together with all your holy things. I will accept you as a sweet aroma when I bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you've been scattered, and I will be hallowed in you before the Gentiles. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I bring you into the land of Israel, into the country of which I raise my hand in an oath to give your fathers. And there you shall remember your ways and all your doings with which you were defiled, and you shall loathe yourselves in your own sight because of all the evils that you have committed." Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have dealt with you for my name's sake, not according to your wicked ways, nor according to your corrupt doings, O house of Israel, says the Lord God. I believe verse 40 through 44 is speaking about after the seven year tribulation. The tribulation, seven year tribulation, is known as the time of Jacob's trouble. It's a time when God's going to be dealing with the nation of Israel, they're going to go through a wilderness period. They're going, to, they're going to be, the second half of the tribulation, the Antichrist is going to be out to, to destroy them. And they're going to, God's going to provide miraculously for them. He's going to take care of them. Um, it's also known as the 70th week of Daniel. And we'll get to Daniel here when we get done with Ezekiel. But it's at that time, or at the end of that time, the Bible says that the nation of Israel, they're going to recognize Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And so I think this is what this is talking about. We're waiting for that to happen yet. And because, uh, you know, we're seeing the Jews coming back into the land and they're coming back from all the nations. I mean, that, that prophecy is starting to happen right now in our lifetime. But if you go to Israel, they're not a Christian nation. They don't, you know, they don't serve the Lord God. In fact, they're a very secular nation. But God's not done with them yet. And He's still doing a work in them. And uh, so I think that's what this is talking about. And now we get to the very end of this chapter. And this here is a prophecy against Jerusalem and Israel. And it's viewed as being toward the south. And if you think about it, Ezekiel and the captives are in Babylon, which are in the north. So it's a prophecy back towards Jerusalem. Verse 45, Furthermore, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face toward the south, preach against the south, and prophesy against the forest land, the south. And say to the forest of the south, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will kindle a fire in you, and it shall devour every green tree and every dry tree in you. The blazing flame shall not be quenched, and all faces from the south to the north shall be scorched by it. And so this chapter ends here in verse, excuse me, that doesn't in verse 48, second to last. All flesh shall see that I, the Lord, have kindled it, it shall not be quenched. So this is basically speaking about the fire of God's judgment that's going to happen upon Jerusalem uh, with the impending 
Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem. And then verse 49, the last verse, Ezekiel says, Then I said, Ah, Lord God, they say of me, does he not speak parables? So, you know, they want, they're sitting before Ezekiel. They want Ezekiel to, you know, what's the Lord got for you? You know, how is he going to deliver us? And, and basically, Ezekiel says, God's not going to, he's not going to let you inquire of him because of your rebellion and because of your sin. And he's going to explain all these things. And, uh, and so they're listening to Ezekiel and say, man, you're just speaking in parables. It wasn't that the prophecies were hard to understand. The problem was they didn't want to understand. They didn't want to recognize their true condition as God was revealing it to them. And so we get into chapter 21. Uh, it's going to be the prophecy of the destruction of Ju- Jerusalem and a picture of a sword, and we'll talk about that later. Um, not today, obviously. Uh, so, you know, in this chapter, the children of Israel... The elders, I should say, they got a history lesson showing how they and their forefathers had rebelled against God and how God continually extended grace to them each and every time. And I I look at my own life and I go, you know what? I'm prone to sin. You and I, we are prone to sin. We have that sin nature in us. And it's so true for you and I as well because God... He keeps, you know, while we're prone to sin and while we're prone to, to, to failing, God's prone to grace. God loves each one of us. He's prone to grace in our lives, and He extends grace to us so much. Um, we're going to be celebrating communion here in just a moment. And, uh, you know, like Israel, God wants you and I to be in a right relationship with Him in order for us to be in communion with Him spending that time with Him. He wants us to have a right heart before Him. And uh, so Paul, when he's writing uh, in 1 Corinthians 11 regarding communion, he says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which He was betrayed took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink this bread, uh, excuse me, eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. And usually I read that portion of scripture during communion, and uh, many churches do. But Paul continues here. He says, therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Now, I used to be, you know, I went to church. I grew up going to church. I had to go to church. And I remember when I was in rebellion, you know, I'm in sin and I'm still going to church. And uh, the pastor would read this whole thing before communion. And I'm like listening, going, oh, man, you know, I'm guilty of the blood of the Lord because, you know, I'm in sin. And I knew I was in sin. And the Bible says here, but let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. And man, I was so condemning. I was like, man, God's going to wipe me out. But, you know, God is a gracious God. And God is a loving God. And God wants you and I to be in that right relationship with him. Now, this, of course, was dealing with the Corinthians with their agape feast, and you can read about it. They were taking it. It was like a, a gluttonous celebration and, and like a, a drunken thing, like a party, basically. And, and so people were getting sick and people were dying, and God's saying, God's judging you because you're doing this in an unworthy manner. 
And so, you know, when I would read this, I would feel really condemned and stuff. And, and, you know, there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus, the Bible says. But God still wants you and I to examine our hearts. And part of that, when we go up to or have communion, is is to say, Lord, you know, I want to have that right relationship with you. And I want to be in a right place with you. You know, just if there's any sin in my life, please forgive me. Show me what it is so I can confess it and repent of it. And that's a good thing to do on a regular basis in our lives. And uh, 